Welcome to the eighth edition of Transformation Talks. My name is David Lancefield and I'm a partner in Strategy and. I'm delighted to welcome Xavier Roulet, Chief Executive of the Asset Manager CQS and the former CEO of the London Stock Exchange, also an angel investor in GoAfrica.com and PeaceCell and a former senior executive in a number of banks. You're listed as one of the top 100 CEOs in the world, according to the Harvard Business Review. The Financial Times said you have a bold, risk-taking style and you're a visionary dealmaker. And indeed, in an earlier part of your life, you're a second lieutenant and an instructor in the French Air Force Academy. Um, it's refreshing that you also have such a rich and varied life outside business. Not often the case for some CEOs. Um, I read that you're with your wife, you run an award-winning family uh, wine business, uh, you're a beekeeper, and you're a participant uh, in a number of Dakar rallies, and no doubt other things I haven't even touched on. Welcome, Xavier. Thanks, thanks for having me. Um, thanks for such a gracious and <laughs> generous introduction. All accurate, all accurate. Um, well, today we're going to focus obviously on transformation and particularly focusing on how you've grown organizations in complex environments and at pace. So the overall theme is scale and, and speed. Um, and so when you took over your role at the London Stock Exchange in particular, how clear was your vision in terms of where you wanted to take the organization? Well, I think the vision was reasonably clear, but uh, one, of course, needs to be flexible and adjust to the new realities of, of doing a job you've never done before. Mm -hmm. So you have to allow for uh, uh, some margin of interpretation error, but also adjusting to the facts on the ground. And these are always driven by customers. Uh, in the case of London Stock Exchange, I joined in the second quarter. By the beginning of the third quarter of 2009, mm. you know, we had a full-fledged strategy, which I presented to investors with, with the management team at the time. So the original strategy was set, and then if you look at the execution, um, it was it was pretty close to the uh, to the uh, sort of early uh, uh, strategic vision or strategic intent. Mm. But there were some things, of course, that uh, as we went, mm. uh, changed that we modified or things that we improved. And essentially, this was based on on customer feedback. Mm. I think fundamentally, strategy like innovation is driven by customers. You have to account for where you are when you land in an organization, take stock as, in terms of your competitive position. In that case, the competitive position, let's say, was not very brilliant. It was, it mm. was uh, very challenging. But it really is the customers that will tell you, uh, you know, basically what they expect from you and from, from your organization. And what was the most surprising thing that the customers told you at the time? I wasn't surprised. Uh, so the most surprising thing, I, I would have to scratch my head a little bit to, to come oh, up okay. with something that surprised me. Having been a customer before, yeah, absolutely. I kind of expected you had that perspective. What, yeah. what I was going to hear. I guess that was an advantage. Um, of course, there were other challenges. Having never run an infrastructure company, you know, I had to adjust to the cycles, which are, are much longer, and to the fundamental vision, which is uh, not so much of, of uh, basically selling short-dated products to your customers, mm. but providing infrastructure that's going to serve their needs for a long, long time. Mm. So that, that framework was different from the investment banking industry. But it did not surprise me to hear that the exchange industry in general, mm. and the company that I had the, the honor to lead uh, in particular, mm. had strayed from, um, well, I would say a close alignment with their customers' needs, challenges. Frankly, they weren't delivering 
what the customers wanted at the price that they wanted. It was not just a price issue, but the, the, the service and the positioning had basically moved away Mm. from the expectations of a range of constituency mm. clients, not just the banks, but also the asset managers. So there's quite a gap in terms of what the customers were looking for. I think Product, so. service, yeah. and, and everything else. Um, and you clearly had a very strong perspective. And just going back, I was interested in terms of how you, in a way, sold that strategy you talked about to the organization uh, and, and, and outside. And in particular, given you were, a, in, in some ways, an outsider coming Very from the bank, so. yeah. how, how, did, how did that help or, or hinder you in selling that vision, that strategy for the, for the transformation of the stock exchange? Of course, in a way, it helps. You know, you've got a so-called fresh pair of eyes. And mm. so be, before people uh, uh, disregard what you say or discount it, um, by and large, you know, they, they will listen to it, at least you know, figure out if you're onto something or not. Mm. The flip side, of course, is not being a, an industry insider. Mm. Uh, let's say that what you're saying is being discounted by those who, quote unquote, are in the know and often part of the establishment of that industry and there are a range of associations and formalized establishment, which we actually hasten to, uh, to, to leave and, and resign from in order to be able to strike an independent course that was driven not by establishment thinking, Mm. As, as worthy as this may, may be or appear to be, but so we could follow a course that was driven by what customers, clients, presence and future would, were telling mm. us they wanted and needed yeah. uh, for business success. And how, how important in that process was the cohesion of the team that you were building around you? Because some executives and chief executives tell me that sometimes when you're trying to genuinely transform reflect what customers yeah. want. Actually, sometimes you can't have the cohesion of the leadership yeah. team. How important was it to you at that it's stage? It's very, very important. And at the time, we were also, I mean, there were three aspects to the strategy. One that we were losing, we, we were essentially a sort of monoline uh, a, a company with a sort of single product. Um, the trading issuance, primary issuance and secondary trading of UK equities. And yes. we were losing our, our market share very, very fast. In fact, in the second quarter of 2009, we were losing about one percentage point of market share every week. So we were facing a, a, an immediate challenge of um, retooling, re-engineering, technological change, structural change. So that there was an operational challenge mm -hmm. that needed to be addressed immediately because we didn't have the right technology, we didn't have the right cost base. And unfortunately, to your point, we didn't have the management at the time. There were 23 members of the executive committee and two survived in, in the first uh, three to four months. So we had to make some fairly radical and immediate changes, not just because, you know, a new CEO arrives and you have to, you know, um, make your mark. And it's, it's really because we were facing uh, a survival, you had to move. You basically, had to move a challenge yeah. of, of really essentially preserving our own existence because we were losing our core Mm. market at a rapid rate. In, in, in the third quarter of 2009, our market share was down below 40%. We were in the low 30s, and there are few exchanges, if you look at the US, for example, that have, have been able to recover substantially. Once you drop you know, to so those right. levels of, yeah. of challenges, it's very difficult to, to get it back. So we were facing a, a real challenge in terms of our own survival, being mm. essentially a, a monoline uh, a, a business. Then secondly, we had this alignment issue with our customers, not just us, but the industry in general. Mm. And we had to look at our structure. 
uh, were we going to preserve a silo, which, by the way, wasn't supported uh, by uh, capabilities. We didn't have a clearing business. We didn't have a settlement business. There were a range of businesses. We didn't have a futures business that other exchanges had that we simply didn't have. Right. And then thirdly, we were in an environment that was moving very fast because you can assess where you are in terms of your rate of innovation, of, of, of client service, the quality of your management, your staff, your product. But there's an industry out there that's not going to wait for you to, Clients. you know, get your yeah, act yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. So we had to assess where we were, and sort of the big positions in the industry were being rapidly taken, and we were essentially marginalized. It's those three elements that determine the strategy that we, uh, in the period from May until September, that we worked out, got approved, and then presented to shareholders in September 2009. And what was the, given those three elements in that presentation, what was the hardest bit of, you know, the convincing, uh, the, you know, the, the shareholders? What was the, what was the hardest part? Um, if you specifically ask about shareholders, I mean, all of them were difficult because the only question I used to get at the time was, where's your market share in UK equities? And the answer was rarely, uh, you know, basically uh, sort of a positive one. Mm. Um, so we had to address their concern with the survivability of our business model, and they were immediate. Pressure was intense. Mm. But secondly, many of the shareholders at the time that that um, some of our major shareholders had um, basically entered the stock at a much, much higher price. And I would say that many of the institutional holders that were looking at the stock at the time uh, and that reflects a lot of the press that were made, and you know, not, not betraying any any private uh, uh, discussions mm. here. This was essentially uh, mirrored and echoed the public commentary in, in the British and the international yes. press at the time, yes. where the comments were, you know, sort of last nail nail in the coffin, you know, roadkill. I remember clearly some of the comments that were used to describe the LSE, yeah. but uh, outlandish or not, investors basically expected a short-term cost-cutting strategy to sort of give a little bit of boost to earnings per yeah, share and most likely a sell, a trade sell, yeah. uh, to a better operator. So yes, they were disappointed with our first uh, early strategic moves. Yeah, I can imagine. That's, that's intense pressure for you. You were operating at pace, but at the same time, the, the picture you had in your head sounds as though it was clear yeah. in terms of the customer perspective. How did you, how did you, I'm interested in your mindset, how did you keep your mindset anyway clear as to where you wanted to take the business in the short term and in the long term? When you've got, you know, shareholders, you've got customers, you'll have employees, you know, both privately and publicly, Giving you know, saying a lot. Um, to put it put it mildly. How do you keep that clarity? That's, that's that's a good question. And the only way actually you can manage the situation is by keeping your clarity. And the only way you can actually keep your clarity once you you formulated, let's call it division, to for lack of a, of better more technical world, is to be very honest, with everybody, mm. with the employees, with the boards, with the customers, mm. with the shareholders. And by the way, I, I disagree. Sometimes I hear analysis about, well, if you're an exchange, you know, you're either going to serve your shareholders or you're going to serve your customers. I fundamentally disagree with that analysis. Okay. It's the same equation. You can't satisfy your shareholders if you're not going to satisfy your, your, your uh, uh, customers. Mm. That equation is central to any strategy. And so I was very, very honest. You know, we, we have a, a, a business that is deeply challenged. And yes, we are going to go ahead with the operational improvements. So you really have nothing to lose. We're going to take costs out because our cost base was bloated. 
But it's not just about letting people go. Most of the people will let go at the time were in senior management. There was about a 15% staff reduction in the first six months. We, we needed to do that simply to survive. This wasn't an issue. Mm -hmm. So you have nothing to lose as, a, as an investor. But we also need to take a deep look at our technology, which was outsourced at the time to consultants, very expensive. I mean, the setup was essentially not one that was going to enable us to compete on right. the basis of the service and the cost mm -hmm. that, we, that we offered. So we had to embark on a complete operational restructuring. We started acquiring technology companies. At the time, that wasn't well understood, and the company didn't have much of a financial, uh, um, you know, well, much of a balance sheet or ability to make large acquisitions. So we started small. We picked certain areas where we were able to acquire very nimble, agile, state-of-the-art technology that would help us reduce our cost. But at the same time, we had to look at our competitive position. And to your question, how do you keep uh, your resolve? It's your customers, ultimately, that are going to sanction those transactions. Well, yeah. um, so in a way, even though the immediate reaction was challenging in terms of the announcements, the fact that your customers, the exactly. customer sentiment and the involvement was positive and Correct. meaningful was one way. Because, yeah, I mean, you, you, you scaled up the London Stock Exchange from what I read from uh, 800 million to 14 billion in, in terms of market cap in eight years. Um, after the obviously the initial um, reimagination, restructuring, and, uh, and sort of cost out the organisation, what was and that, that's that's proper scale at speed in a highly complex environment and a global environment, yes, as you said. True. Um, what were the, what were the hardest parts of that? If you like scaling up in terms of from your perspective, what were the hardest parts? The hardest part was that whilst under pressure from from all sides, uh, from competition regulators and an ever-changing regulatory framework globally, and we were scaling our business globally from mm -hmm. a UK base to a global base, and we can go into details later on, but we were having to do three things at the same time. First, continue a basically an operational redo. This wasn't an optimization. It was basically top to bottom, soup to nuts, complete uh, upgrade and reorganization of the business with significant management hires. Essentially, most of the executive committee was, was hired from outside, as well as, of course, yes. middle layers. Acquis so we were, we were continuing that operational redo at pace, mm. which presents a measure of danger. You know, migrations is probably one of the most dangerous thing an exchange can do. When you mm. migrate from one, mm. even if it's an old system, mm. and if it has outages all the time, to something new, it's not just rolling out the software. That migration for any, especially exchanges, but for any business, everybody focuses on the new things, yeah. or sometimes the legacy, but it's the transition. Transition and is, is incredibly hard. dangerous. Yeah. It's, it's the most dangerous thing an exchange can do. Because it's not just you know migrating to fancy, low cost, uh, highly innovative, agile, effective, well-designed technology. It's how you roll it out into a network of hundreds, sometimes thousands, Mm. of small, mid-sized, large brokers, asset management organizations all over the world who have different regulatory framework. Mm. So migration is, is, is exceedingly dangerous and requires a lot of extension. But at the same time, we also had to catch up. If we wanted to play mm. in intellectual property, we had no assets there. Yeah. Or in clearing, we had virtually no assets. Small asset in Italy mm. that was itself under pressure because of the the Eurozone crisis. So the one asset we had happened to be, from a macroeconomic standpoint, possibly one of the most, um, well, one of the 
the geographical location that was under the heaviest pressure globally being Italy, mm -hmm. which you know one could say has not totally escaped uh, macroeconomic pressure owing to, to the heavy uh, level of indebtedness. But that was already in the group. You know, we, we had to do with it. But, but dealing with that challenge, we had at all time to be considering acquisitions. And the pace at which over eight years, eight and a half years, we, we processed 25 acquisitions, three sales, and two mergers. The two mergers fails, but all the other ones succeeded. Indeed. Uh, I, so you've got three elements. You've got the operational reset, you're creating new assets, you have a series of acquisitions at different stages. You have a relatively new, newish exec yeah, committee. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Because I, I see exec teams who are quite happy on the acquisition spree, mm. but sometimes let the rest of the day-to-day -day business drift away or actually are sometimes good at the integration, but actually focus on the here and now, and then the pipeline yeah. sort of stops. Doing all of those three is hard, right? really complex. How did you do it? We also had to reorganize the platforms that we acquired to prepare them for open access. Yes. And that's the third part. And even within LSE, there were a lot of people uh, that either didn't understand it, uh, some stakeholders, let's say, that didn't understand it, or you know, didn't want to go through with it or thought, you know, we're destroying value before we even acquire mm -hmm. it. So that's the third bit. It's the re-engineering to match customers' expectations. But at the end of the day, a lot of that integration was done through a lot of pressure, a lot of sweating, mm -hmm. a lot of personal attention. You know, and it, it, in that, that, when you're managing an organization with that rate of growth, yes, you discuss things. But at some point, mm -hmm. the search for consensus has got to stop. Is you that the biggest trade-off? You've got to make things happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there are organizations that are, you know, in a, in a, in a, if, if you look basically in the life cycle, mm -hmm. there are in need of probably more forceful leadership. Yes. And there are companies at some point to become so large, need a different kind of leadership, yeah. perhaps more consensus-driven. Yeah. But I think if you're in an organization that has lost its way, doesn't have the vision, doesn't have the people, and doesn't have the background, which they didn't have, executing properly, yeah. we had to shut down four or five projects arriving that had no chance of mm. you know, ever being successful. Mm -hmm. So you have to do all these things, and you've got to push. You know, there's yeah. no um, alternative to, to leadership yeah. at that stage. Now, once the organizations have managed to establish uh, their position. And in infrastructure, the benefit you have is if you make the right decisions and you execute them properly, mm. revenues are very sticky. Yeah. They don't disappear overnight. Yes. Yeah. But then you get into a level where I think something is even more important, perhaps the leadership, is having the eye on future innovation. Yes. And today I yeah. hear an That's enormous- an pivot, isn't it? Well, you, yeah. you need to innovate mm. in services and technology. Yeah. And so from your experience, what, what's getting in the way um, of executives in the large organizations you referred to not leaping forward? It's, it's hard to speculate on what makes a board or an executive management board or, you know, uh, innovative or not. I've, for once, I, I don't want to offend anybody, but I've rarely seen companies with a chief innovation officer mm. being innovative. Um, it is something that has to be in the fiber of a company. And to me, what drives innovation is proximity. And when I say proximity, it's got to be a really, really yeah. close relationship 
with your customers. Really close. You really have to Much understand. Much more than customer it. research or talking about customer research. It's, it's got to be meaningful. It's and, really par partnering yeah. with your customers, yeah. understanding their deepest challenges. And they're not going to tell you what their deepest challenges are unless they really trust you and know you. Mm. So it's not it's not a meeting, you know, where CEO to CEO meeting, now tell me what your challenges are. You really have to get close to them. Yeah. Really understand the challenges they're facing and the opportunities they're looking at. Mm. That, to me, is what drives innovation. And whether it's a board, a management board, or a non-executive board, whether it's senior management, uh, you know, it's proximity to, to customers. We, we launched a, a senior relationship management program at the LSE where every member of the executive committee, mm. every single one of them, regardless of the, whether they were in data, in clearing, or CFO, or uh, heads of operation of technology, were responsible for covering one very meaningful, important customer yeah. addressing basically all their concerns. That's quite a Assuming shift. Relationship, mm. uh, responsibility for a relationship. That's quite a shift. I don't see very that important. much elsewhere. And given the, um, the complex situations you've been uh, you know, having to roll your sleeves up right at the beginning for the London Stock Exchange in previous roles in banks. It was a fantastic you, experience. Yeah, and, and clearly you have a CEO role now and you're an angel investor uh, in a couple of organizations, let alone other things you do in life. What these are complex, challenging, inspiring, no doubt at times, um, situations you plunge yourself into. What, what sustains you as an individual? I mean, I think the, the, the pleasure of working with, with people who, I mean, people use the word passion, I think, a little too much, mm -hmm. but who have, you know, there's many things one can be passionate about, but I think you should start with family and other things, uh, not business, but purpose, I think, is, is probably the, the, the correct word to use. For me, when I look at young businesses like, like Go Africa, I don't, I don't want to pitch it, mm. but when you look at Africa, one of the problems that Africa has is intra-African trade, infrastructure development. Yes. I do happen to know Africa reasonably well, mm. having mm. traveled there for mm. the last 45 years of my life and mm. having grown up there when I was a little boy. Africa needs solution, not just for individuals, but also for businesses, Indeed. for municipalities. Mm. So we created this business where in your cell phone application, if you're a municipality and you want to buy, I don't know, 40 pumps to create an irrigation uh, 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 program, you can connect through the application with any of 13,000 Chinese manufacturers who will be delighted to answer your request for quote, a request for, for price, mm. uh, for bespoke or for standard delivery. We've worked out the distribution, the logistics, which in Africa are very complicated. We yes. can deliver cranes, pumps, anything, trucks, engines, anywhere in Africa. And we've found out a solution in terms of the creation of electronic escrow so that neither the provider nor the customer nor the buyer bear credit risk or counterparty risk right. on the other side. So right. we have an electronic escrow. So this is not you know, fundamentally complicated other than the delivery and the side, but it, it, it meets a need. There's a purpose to this. Yes. And it's giving access to a range of municipalities, businesses, and, 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 and companies who do have access to capital to technology that is going to be well-priced and it's going to help them basically move the dial forward in their particular mm. area. Mm. So there's a need there. Whether the company succeeds or not, mm. we'll see. I'm not involved any more than as an angel mm. investor. I'm not on the board. I'm not part of management. But I think there's a purpose. Mm. And that is one of the things that motivates I can sense me. that. I'd say it's been an absolute privilege, Xavier, speaking with you, learning from you. Um, your, your sense of purpose shines through. Uh, your 
uh, curiosity for actually solving big, big, challenging problems, but also combining different skill sets in, in different moments. You know, growing an organisation, re resetting an organisation at the same time, creating assets, but that customer closeness and the class understanding and understanding customer lens on, in that case, the London Stock Exchange or other organisations you work with, is a, a critical ingredient. And I think often they're not put in the centre of a transformation plan. They're often a little bit distant. They have to be symbiotic. Absolute pleasure. And that was another edition of Transformation Talks. Do subscribe to the series. And if you like today's podcast, be as good as to rate us favourably. Thank you. Thank you, Xavier. Thank you. My pleasure.